episode 23 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the pumps and motor operation and maintenance. Our guest today is Glenn Stoffel, who is a certified environmental trainer and senior instructor for the University of Florida's TRIO Center, where he teaches courses related to the proper operation and maintenance of water and wastewater systems. He has over 30 years experience in the water and wastewater industry as a maintenance worker, manager, and consultant. He is also a certified instructional technologist through the Board of Certified Safety Professionals and is recognized as a master instructor by the National Environmental Safety and Health Training Association. Welcome, Glenn. Hi, Heather. It's good to be here. Oh, I'm excited. These pumps and motors have been around for decades, and you sent me the most brilliant PowerPoint, and we're not going to get to most of it. I don't think today, (laughs) (laughs) but let's get started. What are the two main types of pumps we use in water and wastewater? Well, normally we're going to be using a positive displacement pump and centrifugal pumps. Positive displacement pumps are the type of pump that gives you a constant volume at a constant speed. They don't concern themselves so much with the pressure on the discharge The pressure on the discharge gets higher. They're still going to give you the same amount of volume. Now, centrifugal pumps, those are the ones that really move most of the water and wastewater systems. And uh, as the pressure gets higher on their discharges, the volume goes lower. So they, they have an invert relationship between pressure and what we would call head or pressure and flow. Head and flow. Head and flow. Okay. What kind of positive displacement pumps are you seeing? Well, normally you're finding two major types, what we call a reciprocating pump and a rotary pump. So you have a reciprocating pump. Of course, reciprocation means go back and forth. I do something Mm -hmm. for you. You do something for me. So that's how a reciprocating pump would be. So it would normally be a, a piston or a diaphragm that moves the water. The rotary ones usually use a gear or a lobe type of arrangement Uh to move water through it. There's also a progressive cavity pump, which is really like a screw, a screw type pump that moves the water through a um, cavity, a screwed type cavity. Uh And then the peristaltic pump, which is nothing more than a hose that the water is squeezed through the hose and that that's your rotating type reciprocating as i said it's either going to be a piston or a plunger or some kind of rubber diaphragm that moves up and down or side to side got it now we use the peristaltic pumps all the time with our our products (laughs) so those i'm really familiar with that's positive displacement pumps usually have two uses The first use is if we need high pressure, Uh let's say a high velocity cleaner for a collection system. Those high velocity cleaners usually have positive displacement pumps that can provide that high velocity, high pressure water to clean the inside of pipes. The other pumps, uh, the positive displacements, its it's other use would be for metering flow, Mm -hmm. for adding chemicals or anything like that. And those, those are the two main uses for positive displacement pumps in a water or wastewater system. Got it. Now let's talk about typical troubleshooting for these because there's a whole mess of things that can happen. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is with uh, positive displacement pumps, they're, they're fairly simple. 
Uh, normally for a, a plunger or a piston type reciprocating pump, you normally have your piston, your cylinder, and you have check valves that when the piston's going one direction, a check valve will either let water come into the cylinder and another check valve will prevent it from going out until mm -hmm. the piston moves in the other direction, the piston or the diaphragm. So that's normally how they work. So they're very simple. The rotary type usually have a gear or lobes that rotate and they're fairly simple also, as long as they can trap the water between the gear teeth or the lobe, the, the actual lobes, uh -huh. as they trap that water between it, it should go from the suction side to the discharge side. Now, some of the problems that you can have is, uh, well, if you have no discharge, well, yeah. one of the problems with that, you know, that, that's a pretty big problem. That's a pretty big so, issue. <laughs> yes, yeah. That, a lot of people think that uh, positive displacement pumps don't necessarily need to be primed. Um, mm -hmm. They're easier to prime than other pumps, but they need to have water in them to move, especially if they're going to be lifting water for a, a distance. So. Uh, normally, I tell my people if they're if they've got no discharge, they they want to look at the pump being primed. Mm -hmm. Also, they want to make sure it's plugged in. <laughs> you know, that's, that's another a, thing. That's a game changer there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. Um, I've I've had people that are complaining about their pumps not working, and then they find out that oh, um, somebody had turned off the the main disconnect, and that, yeah, that, yeah, that, that will definitely cause a problem. Now you can have, because they work under so much pressure, one of the things you've got to remember with a uh, positive displacement pump is you cannot shut the discharge valve on uh -huh. a positive displacement pump when, it, when it's running because they don't care about head pressure. They are a positive displacement. That means I don't care what you're going to do on the discharge side. I am going to deliver this water hell or high water, you know, we're going to push that water right through. You so can't if you see it, but close, I'm nodding my head. <laughs> I'm not yeah. in agreement. <laughs> so if you close a discharge valve on a positive displacement pump, something's going to give. If you're lucky, it's just going to stall. But uh -huh. it could also break a pump shaft or rupture the diaphragm. So that, that's another problem. Yeah. You could also have a, a strainer or a filter on them. Need to take a look at the strainers and the filters, see if they're clogged. Also, you may be trying to lift the water too far and you've got a real low inlet pressure. Uh -huh. So you may not be able to be, you know, doing that. Uh, you could have a stuck relief valve where it's actually the water is um, moving through the relief valve. There's a lot of things that can happen. Of course, if the pump is worn and you lost these critical clearances, yeah, you've got a problem there. So no discharge is one way. And of course, that goes to low output, losing prime. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about, you know, it could actually be using too much power, uh, which would be something where, um, well, the viscosity or the thickness of the liquid could be too high or higher than expected. Uh -huh. Or... The discharge pressure, something's getting clogged on the discharge side. Um, that could shut down and slow down those pumps. And then finally, I guess when we start looking at it, excessive noise and vibration. Most of your, well, a lot of your positive displacement pumps have relief valves on them. And if that relief valve is uh, not set properly, you could get chatter from that. Or uh -huh. the anchor bolts could get loose. Um, 
the pump and the drivers misaligned. Um, there's a lot of things that could cause excessive noise and vibration. Yeah, I've had operators before. They're like, yeah, it was dancing all over the place. I'm like, turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> Stop it. Uh, I've, gone, I've gone to places where the, they've, the, the, the pumps were not, might have had a couple of screws holding it down. And you're wondering, okay, if they get under under force here, what's going to end up happening. So uh, one of the things about positive displacement pumps, especially in a wastewater treatment plant, they're well known, their sludge pumps are well known to be, how can I put this, baptismal fonts, let's say. A person that works in a wastewater treatment plant, all of them's got this uh, when they've been baptized, which means they got sprayed with, wastewater Head sludge to pumps are the diaphragm sludge pumps are notorious i had somebody in my class that said yeah they i had a picture of one of those pumps and they said yeah that baptized me i he told me that he had turned off the discharge valve and his buddy was getting ready to turn off the main disconnect which they should have done it the other way around yeah and uh, it called for the pump the guy was standing next to it and it blew sludge right on his chest, right through the uh, diaphragm on that pump. So he says, yeah, I got baptized from that. So that's the thing about positive displacement pumps. They're, they're very simple, but the piping that they're attached to has to be free. The valves have to be opened. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, bad things tend to happen. Okay, well, let's talk about the centrifugal pumps. Yes, then. I really like centrifugal pumps because they're very simple devices. What they do is they have a device inside them called an impeller. And an impeller, it doesn't displace water like a positive displacement pump. It slings it in an mm -hmm. outward velocity, outward direction. That's where the centrifugal comes from. Uh, you have an impeller that's attached to the shaft in the motor, and it spins at high speed. And the water comes in the center and hits veins on the impeller. It's kind of mm -hmm. like what you would do if you were going to splash somebody in a pool. You don't really cup the water. You sort of slice the water and mm -hmm. sling it. So that's what the impeller does. So the impeller gives the water real high velocity. And then surrounding the impeller is the pipe or the pump casing or volute. And the volute, what that does is it converts high velocity to pressure by its shape and it directs that water to the discharge. So what happens is the impeller gives velocity energy to the water mm -hmm. and the volute in the process of slowing that water down creates pressure. So, and the beauty of the centrifugal pump is the higher the discharge pressure, the lower the flow. And that's what I tell my students. Like if, if they're in my class and I say, okay, if you're only going to get 10% out of this class in two years, this is what uh -huh. I want you to remember on a, a centrifugal pump. Higher the discharge pressure, the lower the flow. And that, and of course, that would relate to longer run times and that type of thing. So that's the beginning of troubleshooting. And of course, when the pressure gets so high that the impeller spins, but it can't move the water because the pressure is so high. We call that deadhead. Uh -huh. And that's one of the things that we don't want to have happening with a pump. And that's something that can happen where uh, 
let's say you've got a pumping station that has a lot of other pumps on it. Let's say a, a lift station that's hooked up to a lot of different pumps and all, all the pumps are running. Uh, the pressure could get so high that that one of those pumps may not be moving any water. So that's that's deadhead. In college, we did a lot of calculations on pumps and stuff, the impellers and so forth. But it was really different seeing it in the field actually working. Yeah. You know, the oh, math, yeah. the numbers and then reality. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's it. <laughs> OK, uh, so what are some of the types of these pumps that operators will see in the water and wastewater industry? Well, normally we have three types. Uh, the first type is an end suction pump. And the water comes in the center, the impeller moves it 90 degrees to the discharge, and that's normally used in wastewater operations. It's really considered a high volume, low pressure type pump. It normally can move high, like it can move solids very well. That's the one pump that, you know, normally a wastewater end suction pump is, I believe it's a two inch diameter solid it can move. That, that classifies it as a wastewater uh -huh. pump. And that's very commonly used for lift stations or anything where you're going to be moving wastewater that has debris or, you know, yeah. uh, it, it's chunky water. Let's, let's call it that. That's, there you uh, go. That sounds yeah. tasty. T chunky yes. water. <laughs> yes, chunky water. Now, then you have a split case pump. Now, the split case pump is used for clean water transport because it can't move many solids. It'd get clogged up if it tried to move rags or any of the solids mm -hmm. that are in wastewater. So it's strictly a water pump. And it's considered a high volume, high head or pressure pump. And it's very commonly used in say booster stations. And normally that's gonna be mounted in a dry pit. An end suction pump can be mounted in a dry pit, or it could be also submerged in the flow. Split uh -huh. cases are strictly dry pit pumps, and they're normally found in the wastewater or in the water distribution system when they need to boost the pressure up or when they need to fill elevated tanks. That's where you'll find the split case pumps. Then finally, you have your vertical turbine pumps. Now, they are the most efficient pump. They can provide high pressure transport of clean fluids. Mm -hmm. uh, they're very common use in wells, deep wells. You're going to find your vertical turbines in deep wells. And you're also going to find them in what they call high service pumps, which are pumps that are at the water treatment plants that move the treated water out to the distribution system. Mm -hmm. So okay. those are the Cadillacs. They're the most efficient of all the centrifugal pumps. I have to say they're pretty good looking in the field when they're brand new too. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yes. My kids are like, I don't get you, mom. I'm like, they're so cool. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, these, these pumps are really versatile. Like you mentioned, they can do dry and submerge. What else makes them different? Well, it all depends on how the motor and the uh, pump is connected. Some of them, like your submersible pumps, mm -hmm. they, they would share a shaft with the motor. So all the bearings would be in the motor and uh, the pump would be connected to the motor and the impeller would be on the end of the motor shaft for all intents and purposes. Now, they could also, and those are called close coupled pumps. Okay. You could also have them connected where you've got a separate motor 
and shaft and bearings are in the motor. And then you have a pump that has a, all the bearings are in the pump and they are connected with a coupling. Those are the two main ways that they can be operated. Something that comes next, I think, for a lot of engineers is the pump discharge curves. And the engineers use them all the time. Yes, yes. And, you know, we even have, and large firms will actually have kind of like a set of pumps you can choose from. And these are the the things you look at in PSH, what you're looking at. How would regular people or operators look at that? In my pump classes, we go over the pump curves, first of all, to show them how higher pressures affect the flow rate coming out of the pump. A lot of times, especially nowadays on the wastewater side, one of the problems mm-hmm. that we're getting is a lot of grease and buildup yeah. um, that is in the pipes, which in- increase the pressure on the pump. And if it's a centrifugal pump, what's going to happen is you're going to have lower flow coming out of the pump. And if you don't have a flow meter, your chances are you st- you have an hour meter. You're going to notice that the pump's going to be running longer. And uh, I find that working with pump curves, and actually I get a lot of frustration from a- operators because the engineers will come in there and they'll uh-huh. say something like, oh, well, we're running to, uh, uh, it's running to the left of the curve. And uh, you yeah. know, they're, they're sort of feeling like, okay, yeah, right. Uh, what like is whatever that? that means. <laughs> yeah, whatever that means. <laughs> So what we try to do is uh, show them how curves, you know, of course, we we work with uh, the head capacity curve, which is the main Mm -hmm. pump curve, which, you know, it has a vertical axis that's feet of head and a horizontal axis, which is flow rate. And uh, it shows that how much a pump can pump uh, when it's under low pressure and how less can it pump when the pressure gets high, even to the deadhead point, which were where the flow would be zero. But one of the biggest things I want to get into on those pump curves is net positive suction head required. That's something that's on those pump curves. And that's something that operators need to be aware of because that can definitely cause problems with cavitation if we don't have proper net positive suction head. So that's what we do with the pump curves. We introduce them to the operators and we show them what information is on there. Uh, Of course, it can show horsepower. It would show net positive suction head. Of course, the flow rate at different feet of head. Yeah. So that's what we try to do with those. A lot of times people are getting or inheriting pumps and things that might not have the manuals with them anymore. But over time, pumps don't always work within those ranges anymore. You know, they, no. And that's where the drifting uh, sometimes comment comes in. And what's really cool is going online. And now you can get it straight from the manufacturer where it's supposed to be. So there's yeah, it's much more in the operator's hands than it was before. Yes, it definitely is. One of the things that I recommend is even with lift station pumps, I really think that they should, with a lift station pump in the valve vault, they should install some kind of pressure gauge. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'd do a quick disconnect. I wouldn't leave it there because you'd want to use a, a well-calibrated pressure gauge. And you don't want to leave it there. But if you are able to do that, you have that pressure gauge. There's a method to determine what is the actual total dynamic head of that mm-hmm. pump as it's installed. You can throttle the flow on a centrifugal pump provided it's okay with the manufacturer. So if anybody was yeah. going to say, oh, well, I'm going to try to 
throttle this pump. Make sure that the manufacturer is okay with that, the pump manufacturer. You know, a lot of them, you can't do that. But uh, what you yeah. would do is uh, put that pressure gauge in, close your discharge valve, and record that pressure when the pump is deadheaded. And then you can start looking at, okay, what is the total dynamic head? What is the deadhead here? And then pressures at different at different, when you open the valve and give it different pressures, you could almost create your own pump curve. And that's one of the things that's really beneficial. And that's what we try to teach at TRIO is how you could possibly do that. Yeah, no, that's invaluable. There's also the concern you might invalidate your warranties if you're you know, trimming or running low or something like that. So it's always good to know what you have. And then like you yes. said, you can do testing and so forth like that. Cause there's nothing like thousands of dollars down the drain and the warranty doesn't cover it because <laughs> X, Y, Z happened. Well, that's like any time that you get a new pump installed, the vendor or the installer should give you an installed pump curve. Yeah. So you can understand, you know, exactly what the, what the pump is doing for different flow rates, the pump curve and the system curve works together. And the system curve is nothing more than how much back pressure do you get to the pipe as the flows get higher? Mm -hmm. That way you can tell, okay, is this pump fitting the system the way it should be? Uh, I've had cases with water pumps where we estimated the system curve uh, a little bit off and so when the pump went in there, it overpumped. Now, when ah, you have okay. a pump that overpumps, now you're creating cavitation. And it even got to the point where a couple of times we had to take the impellers out of the pump and put them on a lathe and make them a little bit smaller, or they, uh -huh. they call that trimming, to fit to the system. So this is all the kind of thing that a pump curve can help you determine. Yeah, and hopefully it's done right in the design, done right in the stall, and then you check it. <laughs> All yeah, and that, that's one of the problems that you have. <laughs> the pump manufacturers are going to go by what you give them as far as what your system curve is. And they need to match that pump to that system curve. And uh, being able to, once it's installed, give us a pump curve that says, yeah, this is doing what it's supposed to do yeah. is very good for the life of that pump. We've talked about them in general now, and you mentioned cavitation. Let's move forward into like the different parts of the pumps that we're okay. looking at. And you mentioned the impeller. There's multiple kinds. Why don't you talk about that and then how cavitation impacts that? Okay. Yeah, there's three basic impellers that you've got. And it all has to do with, I told you that there were veins in the impeller that sling the water. That's what mm -hmm. they do. Now, I always look at the veins. I look at the impeller as kind of like a sandwich, right? It's got a vein. It's got veins that sling the water. And that would be like the meat of a sandwich. You know, you can get an open sandwich or a closed sandwich or a full sandwich. So if you've got an uh -huh. open face sandwich, it's going to have a device, which is a solid circular piece that the impellers are attached to. And there's only one. It would be on the motor side of the shaft or on, of the impeller. Mm -hmm. That would be considered semi-open. Now, and then, of course, if there were two shrouds where the veins were actually enclosed between these two shrouds, that would be a closed impeller. Now, what happens is with an open impeller, they'll give you a lot of vol volume, 
but because it's open, you're not going to get as much velocity out of it. So if you're not going to get that much velocity out of it for that application, hopefully you get enough velocity to move the water where you want to, but it can handle a lot better solids, but you can't Mm -hmm. expect much pressure. Of course, if you put one shroud on it, then that's going to increase the velocity coming off of those veins and you'll get a little bit more capacity. Most of our wastewater impellers that are moving, you know, in pumping stations and that type of thing that are any, any size, any volume are usually going to be closed impellers. And that's where we talked about two inches yeah. being able to move a two inch solid. Well, those shrouds would be two inches apart with the veins in between. Them. Got it. Well, one of the enemies of impellers is cavitation. And I've mentioned this. That's a pump killer. That's why when we talked about curves, the operator needs to recognize when a pump is cavitating. Now, in many cases, that's very easy if it's mounted in a dry pit because you can hear cavitation. It sounds like the pump is pumping marbles or rocks. Yeah. Um, When a pump's working properly, you shouldn't hear any of that. But if it is, then then you should be taking a look at, okay, well, what's happening here? Uh, Why are we getting cavitation? And and that's one of the things that you need to be aware of. That's where the curve really comes in, because you have net positive suction head is the amount of pressure on the suction side of the pump. Atmospheric pressure is actually what pushes the water into a centrifugal pump. That's why a centrifugal pump can really not lift anything more than we recommend no more than 20 to 25 feet on the suction side. Uh, Now, if the pump could create a perfect vacuum, it'd be 34 feet at regular sea level. But normally we don't want to have it pull any higher than that. And also that would be considered a suction lift condition. Pumps can either be mounted above the water that they're going to be pumping Uh which would be suction lift, or they can be mounted below the water that they're going to be lifting, which is uh, actually, I prefer what we would call the suction head, or some of the old timers call that a flooded suction. Got it. Where not only do you have the atmospheric pressure pushing the water in, but you also have the weight of the water pushing Pushing it in. Okay. One of my biggest concerns is, is uh, especially with bigger pumps where they set the start points of the pump lower than the net positive suction head that's required, which means let's say I'm in a suction head condition and my uh, suction head has to be at least 10 feet above the center line of the pump for that particular pump. And somebody decides, well, you know, I think I'm going to take the wet well or I'm going to take the tank a little bit lower. Uh And what happens is as that tank gets below what is required, then the water doesn't get into the pump as fast as it needs to. And what ends up happening now, the engineers talk about the vapor, you know, it it, it vaporizes the water. Well, actually, the way I like to tell my students is, okay. Now what's happening is your impeller veins are skidding against the water. They're not moving the same amount of water out that's coming in. And because they're skidding against that water, they're setting up refriction, which creates a vapor. The vapor comes in as forms of bubbles 
Mm-hmm. And that normally happens on the low pressure side of the pump, the suction side of the pump. Then when these little tiny bubbles hit the high pressure side of the pump, they implode. And, yeah, snaps. And, and they, they make that. And if they're let, resting against metal on the inside or the tip of the impeller veins, it's water blasting. It erodes the interior of the pump. Yeah, so it's very important that we make sure that we have a net positive suction head that is adequate. And that means it's above the net positive suction head that's required. It literally looks like little divots. Oh, yeah. It or can penetrate up, right yeah, through. It, it can eat up an impeller. In my uh, slides, I show pictures of, I mean, you wonder how these pumps were even moving any water with some of the <laughs> ate up impellers that I've seen. Yeah, by the grace of God. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and of course, they do other things. They set up that cavitation that sets up vibration. So mm-hmm. that can compromise your packing, um, your seals, any O-rings. So these are the kind of problems that you have. Of course, the suction, if the suction line isn't airtight, I mean, uh, if it's bringing in any kind of air into the suction line, that's the same thing. It's not actually cavitation, but the results are the same. We're creating little small bubbles that get smashed when they get over to the high pressure side of the pump. So that's one of the big, th- big things I'm concerned about. That's one of the things I really stress in my classes is how to recognize cavitation. And that's why you should also always, especially with these submersible pumps, mm-hmm. you're not going to hear the cavitation usually in submersible pumps unless it gets really, really extreme and vibrates the pipes. Yeah, um, then you're, it's a little late. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so what you want to do is periodically pull the pumps and do a wet check. Just take a look in there and see what the interior of the pump looks like. Of course, unfortunately, with all the uh, rags and problems that we're having, a lot of these uh, pumps are getting wet checked a lot more often than we, (laughs) we would like. So if you're going to derag a pump, take a look and see if you get it. If you see any metal getting ate away, that could tell Mm -hmm. you that, Hey, there are cavitations occurring. Yeah. I actually just went out of a store and saw someone with a giant box of quote unquote flushable wipes. And I went, they're not, they're not. (laughs) I know. (laughs) That's, um, that's the biggest problem in our industry right now. That and, and Greece, which Greece has been causing a lot of problems with pumps because it's building up on the uh, discharge lines, the force mains and that type of thing on the wastewater side. That that is just gross too. (laughs) And plus, you know, cavitation can happen because of restricted, if the water's not moving out of the pump as fast as it's coming in, Mm -hmm. of course, then that impeller is going to skid against the water, vaporize it, and boom, you've got cavitation coming from them. So, it's not just the suction side you've got to be concerned about. It. It's also the uh, discharge side. And like I said, that's another reason for the pump to be balanced to the system, because if the mm-hmm. pump is over pumping, the water's not getting in as fast as it's coming out or the other way around. If there's a clog in the line, the impeller is spinning in the water and creating bubbles and cavitation. Got it. Moving on, what does the stuffing box of packing seals and all that kind of stuff have to do with it? Well, a couple of things. We're being powered by a motor and the motor is going to be sit in a nice dry area 
uh, well, even if it's submerged, the motor itself is going to be nice and dry. And it's got a shaft that has got to make the transition into a very wet environment. Mm -hmm. So the shaft is going to go through an assembly on the back of the volute that we call a stuffing box. I can understand where that name came from because probably when they were putting the first pumps together, these people were saying, wait, wait a minute, we're getting a lot of leakage around that shaft. Yeah. So what are we going to do? <laughs> so let's put a box around it and stuff ropes or something around it. And yeah. maybe it'll stop the leak. And when they saw that, hey, yeah, we, we stuffed a bunch of rope around it in that box and, it and the leak stopped. So, you know, okay, well, let's get nomenclature here. What do we call that box? Uh, well, let's see, we stuffed packing and uh, we'll call it a stuffing box. So that's, I don't know if that's really how it happened, but, uh, but I, I do like that idea. <laughs> yes. And th so, those are different from the seals though. Yes. Yes. The seal, now the, the packing needs maintenance. Mm -hmm. What we're going to do is we'll put a fibrous packing in that stuffing box and we will compress that. So it prevents, it does two things. It prevents excessive water from leaking from the wet side of the pump back to the dry side to where the motor would be. So it's going to do that. And that water is also going to lubricate the packing, which will help to keep the stuffing box cool. Matter of fact, a lot of times I recommend if you're working with a stuffed pump, uh -huh. the heat of the stuffing box, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of using these IR temperature gauges, you know, it's temperature oh, yeah, guns. Yeah. So the temperature of the stuffing box shouldn't be any more than the temperature of the water that's being pumped. If it is, then it means that, um, you know, it's probably building up heat there and you're getting wear. So the, the stuffing box, the packing and the seals have to be lubricated. So we normally do that with what they call seal water. Now, a submersible pump, the wet part is right there where the stuffing box is. Uh -huh. And so those seals are going to be lubricated by just being in the wet. Other pumps that are dry pit pumps have to have separate seal water systems. So that would lubricate and keep the packing cool. Now, packing is fibrous. So mm -hmm. you're going to want to have a little bit of leakage because that's going to take any fibers that get sloughed off and sort of gets it out of the stuffing box and keeps the packing lubricated. Now, a mechanical seal, packing is pretty straightforward. They've been using uh -huh. that for years. A mechanical seal has two components. It has a stationary element, which doesn't move. And it's either mounted in the stuffing box, usually mounted in the stuffing box. And it has a very smooth face. And on the outside of that seal, it's a circular seal, usually made out of ceramic, but it can be made out of stainless steel. Uh -huh. It's got a very smooth face. And of course, it has um, a gasket O-ring around it, so the water can't get around it. So what, what it does is it sits there in the stuffing box and it doesn't move. That's why I call it stationary. Then you have another seal that's attached to the shaft and that rotates. Now that's attached to the shaft and on the inside of that seal is where your O-rings and everything. So now between these two seals, 
you've got water that can't come along the shaft because of the rotating element having internal seals. Uh-huh. And it can't get around the outside of the stationary element because there's seals on the outside of that stationary element. So the only where the place the water could get is between the two faces that spin up against one another. And as I said before, they have to be very smooth and they have to be perfectly aligned because mm-hmm. in actuality, those two faces don't touch when the pump is running. The centrifugal force of that shaft spinning actually forces water between those two faces. And mm-hmm. so there's two faces kind of hybrid, uh, hydroplane against one another. And the water is evaporated by that friction. And so it turns it into vapor. And so they don't leak at all. A mechanical seal doesn't leak at all. If I had my druthers, I wouldn't have packing in any pumps. I'd have everything with mechanical seals. And now that they're putting in split seals, it's getting a little bit easier to make the transition from your old pumps that have packing in them to installing a mechanical seal, which won't leak at all and doesn't need any uh, tightening or adjustment or replacement until it's bad. What are some of the other elements we should look at? Well, bearings are a big thing. Bearings are, that's what's going to be supporting the shaft. So uh, we got to make sure that we keep the bearings adequately lubricated, but not over lubricated. Over lubrication can wear out a bearing quicker than anything else. So that's one of the things I get concerned about when we start looking at maintenance programs. Uh, uh-huh. You know, um, how often should you lubricate the bearings? Um and of course, the, the, then the other thing you have is wear rings. Now, what a wear ring is, is uh, centrifugal pumps, they don't really have any seals between the high pressure side of the pump and the suction side. So there's always going to be a little leakage of water from the high pressure side to the suction side of the pump. Mm-hmm. Um, no pump, no centrifugal pump is 100% efficient. If we can get 80% efficiency out of a centrifugal pump, we're pretty happy. And that means 20% of that water is going to be going back to the suction side. It's a little more complex but th- than that, but for yeah, my but- operators, it's, it, this, is, this is close enough. The problem is, is it's going to be moving through very close toleranced area, and that water is going to be eroding away that close tolerance. We want to keep that tolerance as tight as we can so we don't have too much leakage. So at those points where that water goes from the high pressure side back to the suction side, we put a sacrificial ring in there. And it could either be mounted on the impeller, it could be mounted in the housing, but its job is to, I think the classic academic answer is to concentrate wear on an economically replaceable part. I was actually just thinking that. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, there it is. Uh, you know, that, that's just, uh, that's seeing this for over these years. And so mm-hmm. what we'll do as part of the wet check is we're going to check the tolerance of those wear rings, um, how much have they worn. And actually, that may be a reflection of you may see your run times going up on your pumps because they're losing efficiency. And some of that water is actually recirculating inside of the pumps because the wear rings have worn beyond their tolerances that, mm-hmm. that are acceptable. So we replace the wear rings and we start over again. So that's wear rings. Of course, if you have a um, pump that has couplings, 
Uh, couplings are another problem. They're probably the leading cause of vibration and pumps if they're not aligned okay. properly. There's a lot of different types of couplings. You can have fixed couplings. You can have flexible couplings. But their job is primarily to transfer the energy from the shaft, from the motor shaft to the pump shaft and, and make up for a little bit of misalignment during startup. But they have to be adjusted properly. So uh, in the old days, when I first got in this business, we were using calipers and, and uh, different methods, uh -huh. calipers and, and spacers and different things. But now you can get a laser rig. If you're doing it a lot, you get a laser rig that can help you adjust those couplings pretty easily. That's so, cool. Technology helps yes, sometimes. <laughs> yes, those are the things. Any other parts that come to mind? Well, you've got your shaft sleeves. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. And of course, wherever the shaft goes through that stuffing box, we don't want the shaft itself to get worn. If it's yeah. a packed, if it's a packed uh, uh, pump, there's definitely going to be wear on that shaft. So we put a sleeve on that shaft. So whenever they would replace the packing or replace the wear rings, we want to make sure that that shaft sleeves in pretty good, pretty good shape. Mm -hmm. We look for normal wear on that. That's like with packed pumps. Uh, this is one of the things I see a lot out there since I've been in this business. A lot of times they'll have a packed pump where it starts to leak and there, there's a gland that's screwed into the top of the stuffing box that compresses the packing. And that's how you control the leakage. And eventually that gland is not going to be able to tight, be tightened anymore because the packing has been compressed too much. So what they end up doing, and I've seen this happening, is rather mm -hmm. than pull all the packing out, which is what you're supposed to do, is they'll go and stick another ring of packing on the top, which means all the lubrication and everything of the other packing underneath of it is all gone. And so all you did was put a new piece of packing with lubrication in it because packing has a little bit of lube in it anyway. Uh -huh. And uh, so what's happening is then what will happen is that packing that you didn't replace starts to eat up the shaft sleeve. And there's a lot of pictures out there where they show where pumps that were, they didn't replace all the packing. They were just replacing the top layers of packing uh -huh. and it eats up those shafts. Now, if that was a regular shaft, that would be pretty bad. But at least the sleeve is a sacrificial component again. Yeah, that's what I was thinking that same phrase, sacrificial. I yep. have not been allowed to do anything with packing. I've only been allowed to watch it. Operators get nervous when they hear that you're an engineer. They're like, don't touch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we don't like to we don't like to keep the engineers getting too close to that. We don't want to there's yeah. certain secrets. They they keep secrets from us. So we're we're gonna keep some secrets from them too. So there you go. Turn around spare play. Totally. <laughs> okay. Well, how about uh, like pump maintenance then? We've talked about all the things that can go wrong. What are, what are the best ways to do pump maintenance? You know, it's really evolved. Um, of course, you, you've got reactive or corrective maintenance. And, and mm -hmm. we would like to get rid of that, but that's never going to happen. Things are yeah. going to break and you're going to have to fix them. And the question here is, is it an emergency where you've got to take care of it immediately or can we wait and schedule it? And that's uh -huh. why you really need to look at all of your pumps and determine what their criticality is. 
So if you have a, a pump that goes off and you've had a problem with a pump that something happened to it, what are some of the alternatives that you have? Do you have some other pumps that you can use? Mm-hmm. So, but that's all reactive. And that tends to be expensive because you might have to get special order on parts. Uh, you may have to pay overtime. So reactive is uh, the least preferred type of pump maintenance. Then we have preventative maintenance. Now, preventative maintenance has always been either hours run or a calendar. You know, every month we're going to do this. Preventative maintenance is a good method. But in many cases, uh, and what I've seen as a consultant, in many cases, they're doing more preventative maintenance than they need to. They're saying, okay, we're going to pack, we're going to grease this pump every three months. Whether it needs it or not, we're going to grease the pump or we're going to change the oil every three months. And so now a good maintenance manager will know his pumps and his motors and will set reasonable time frames or hours run to set the preventative maintenance. But that's that's what uh, one of the things that it's kind of tough to be able to do that where you're not either over maintaining it or under maintaining it because you don't have something that can tell you when this needs to be done. That's where predictive maintenance comes. And that's really where your large maintenance groups are going to. They're going to a predictives. They uh-huh. they look at the condition of the pump. They'll be checking vibration. They'll be checking temperature. Uh, They may be sending motor oils out for labs to test. Mm -hmm. These are more predictive. So the only time that they may do, say, lubrication on a pump is when the temperature of the bearing gets to a certain set point or the uh, vibration level gets to a certain point. So then they cut down on preventative maintenance. Preventative maintenance sometimes is overdone unless it's very, unless you keep very tight. So those are the three types. Got it. You also had an acronym in the PowerPoint you sent me and it was Claire. And I like that. Yeah, I really like that too. That actually comes from the company that I used to work with, my utility that I worked with for 28 years. They came up with that. Uh Uh, It means clean, lubricate, adjust inspect and replace. And so their PM programs and their predictive programs follow that acronym. So clean, lubricate, adjust, inspect and replace. So you'll go out there, you'll make sure everything is clean. You're going to lubricate what needs to be lubricated. If there's adjustments, say the stuffing box is leaking a little too much and you want to adjust that. Of course, you're going to do an inspection of the whole pump. And Mm -hmm. this is where you may very well do a wet check, pull the pump and do a wet check. And of course, if anything needs to be replaced, filters, anything or anything that you might find from the first four letters there that need to be replaced, then you do that. So that's an easy way to remember it. Whenever you go out to do PM, you should think Claire, clean, lubricate, adjust, inspect, and replace. Well, I know a lot of people struggle with the replace part, having funding and budget and timing and all that kind of stuff. Where else does maybe PM programs kind of fall short? One of my concerns with PM programs is balancing the work. 
Ah. See, here, here's one of the things that you'll have. A lot of your larger, and I, I normally work as a consultant. I usually work with large utilities. Okay. So they've got a computerized maintenance management system, and they usually have a person that's taking care of that and setting mm -hmm. is setting times. And what can happen is you can start getting so many PM work orders out that you can't catch up. And so it gets very frustrating. It gets frustrating for the operators uh -huh. and, of course, as managers, because they're going to say, hey, this work order has been open for, you know, three weeks. When are you going to close it? So that's one of the problems I see with PM programs. Of course, overdoing. I yeah. mentioned earlier, you know, I actually had a place where they said, OK, every month you're going to give three strokes of grease to the bearing. And I had guys complaining about how hard it was to get those three strokes. Uh, you can just push these strokes, get the get the grease guns to give it three strokes. Well, chances are that's going to damage the bearings. So th that's one of my concerns with PM. I, I, I lean more toward a combination of predictive and preventive. So figure out what is good for preventive work. I mean, if you've got, uh, let's say, filters on variable frequency drives, okay, yeah, uh -huh. that's pretty much based on what environment or any kind of filters, that's something you could put on PM. But there's other things like lubrication that I think you need other triggers. And that's where I like where we look at vibration analysis, mm -hmm. you look at temperature, those types of things, more on the predictive side. Which, how is this component, how is this asset working currently? And that's what we're checking. I know a lot of operators, they'll walk in onto the plant. And the first thing they'll do is put their hands on the pumps and you oh, know, yeah. <laughs> hands on the equipment just to make sure you know, there isn't that vibration or you know, make it a part of their inspection is to actually touch, not just look. Yeah, well, things. that's one of the things that I'll tell you when somebody goes into where their pumps are running, especially if they're, you know, if they run that plant all the time. Just go in there and just listen. Just mm -hmm. listen, walk around, put your hand on the pump. It's not a bad idea to have a stethoscope. Oh, yeah, yeah. Part of the predictive maintenance, they call it, is ultrasonic. And when I first heard about one of my big clients, I mean, this was a group that I think they had 350 people in their maintenance group. Oh, my um, gosh. They were talking about ultrasonic. And I was thinking, wow, I am like a flow meter. They got these things and said, no, nah, we just have we just have stethoscopes and we know where to put them. And that's basically <laughs> what they do. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> now, there may be some more advanced listening devices that they put out there that I'm not aware of, but uh, pretty much in my maintenance classes, I talk about toolboxes. And some of the things I like to say, I, I like the temperature guns, the IR temperature uh -huh. guns, a vibration pen. These are the kind of things that you'd want to put in your uh, toolbox, plus plenty of duct tape. You know, it's, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Never know when you're going to need that. <laughs> So, well, you also talk, or talked about the five whys of troubleshooting. What does that mean? Because if well, I hear five whys from someone, I'll be like, shut up. <laughs> okay. Well, now, if you're an engineer, I'm going to be talking root cause analysis. See? Yeah. But this is, and it's funny because I worked with a program, this five whys of troubleshooting. Actually, I was in the Marine Corps for four years. I was a helicopter mechanic. So I'm a Navy trained mechanic. And that was what I learned then. They called it the five whys. 
It's pretty straightforward. It, it means that no problem has been solved unless the question why has been asked at least five times and a sensible answers been uh-huh. given each time. Now, in our industry, you've got mechanics and you've got part changers. And that's uh-huh. one of the things I want my part changers to become mechanics. And the way that they do that is finding out why are they replacing this part? Mm-hmm. Not just say, yeah, this pump goes through a seal. We got to replace the mechanical seals on these pumps every year. Yeah. You know? Well, that's not normal. But, you know, a parts changer will say, yeah, no, I'm good at changing that. I, I do it all the time. So I can yeah. do that. Mechanic's going to say, well, wait a minute. Why are we doing that? So like the example that I use, and this is really, really a basic example, but is um, you have a pump where the mechanical seal failed. And so first question is, okay, why did this mechanical seal fail? So now you use your troubleshooting charts and your different things, and you, you come up with the first why, which let's say you just do your examination, you do your troubleshooting sheets that you've got, and you find out that the pump cavitated during parts of its operation. And that vibration actually caused the seal faces to crack. This is where you would pull the seal faces out and take a look at them. Mm-hmm. That's another thing with seals. You know, they, you, can, you can get charts that if you look at the seal when you pull it, you can actually see, oh, wow, this is this, the stationary element, which is kind of brittle, got cracked. Okay, so it must be from vibration. Yeah. So then you say, okay, vibration or cavitation. So the next why would be, well, well why was that pump cavitating? So you start looking into that and you notice that, wait a minute, it only cavitates during one part of the cycle. The level in the pump and the wet well goes down to a certain point, it starts to cavitate. So that means it's cavitating because it didn't have enough net positive suction head. All Mm -hmm. right. So because it actually drew everything down. So next question is, okay, why didn't it have enough suction head? Well, the answer to that is, well, the level in the tank got too low. Okay, so why did the level in the tank get too low? And well, grease was getting built up on the float and it made the float stick toward the end of that cycle. And so that's what caused it to pump, pump because the grease was built up on the float. And then the question is, is why did the grease build up? And it says, well, the float wasn't checked and cleaned as needed. Now, that's a real basic example, but that's how five whys work. So a good mechanic asks the question why five times until he gets the answer, Mm -hmm. root cause analysis. So you're not having to change this pump seal every year and a half and blame it on, yeah, that's just what this pump does. We'll find out why it does it. And the root cause analysis. Yeah, that's that's the engineering term. But I mean, it really is what you're saying. Well, why this? Why that? Wait a minute. Why is it happening here? Yeah, it's funny. I was working a project where we were doing that. Uh, I was working with a consulting firm as an operations specialist with a consulting firm. And we were doing root cause analysis for water distribution systems. And it was nothing more than a fancy five whys. I think that really increases your value as an operator as well. Or even as an engineer, yeah. but I, I've been in a place where you know, the pump was having all these issues and it was a $10 answer upstream. Yes. Oh, yes. I, I had a situation where we had a pump that had a bearing that was getting changed almost every year. They had to change the bearing. Oh, wow. And they would. They would change the bearing and everything. It was an old pump. 
and it didn't have any maintenance manuals for the old pump. So we got out there and we pulled the bearing. We took a look at it and recorded the number and did some research and found out that the bearing that had been replaced was the wrong bearing. And oh. when we started looking into what was happening, somewhere along the line, the bearing went bad uh -huh. under normal wear. The mechanic went out there and probably couldn't find the bearing that they needed. So they went in the warehouse and they looked at different size bearings and looked at one that matched the size and the dimensions of the bearing that they took out and they put it in, but mm -hmm. it wasn't the correct bearing. And so what happened is every time after that first bearing was put in, uh, it's kind of like all the cars in a parking lot, they're all straight until they park in and they're parking straight. And then one comes in there and parks at an angle and all the rest of the cars follow at that same angle. Yeah, that's how yeah. it worked with the bearings. Uh, when we did the research, we said, wow, this is the wrong bearing. And they've been replacing the wrong bearing the whole time. <sighs> so that's <laughs> the kind of thing that it's very simple to do. I could see how that operator did it. We needed to get that thing back online and they didn't have and, the actual bearing for it. And so it has to happen now. The same. But they didn't understand the intricacies of bearings and, you know, their thrust and their rotary values and what their numbering means. And, you know, this is why we need to educate our mechanics and our operators. I like to have operators come to my mechanical classes so they can recognize problems because I've, I've had mechanics tell me, yeah, I go there and they'll say something like, yeah, why have you guys fixed that? It's been like that. It's been making that noise for months. Well, nobody told us because they were just assuming, oh, well, that's how that pump must sound. And uh, uh -huh. they weren't giving the information. So I really like to see operators in my mechanical classes just to, so they can recognize when things aren't normal. Yeah, that little bit of cross training there. Yes. And I would throw engineers in that mix too, but maybe in the back corner so we don't get in the way. <laughs> no, no I, like, I like the engineers. I All like right. to come out. <laughs> That's what makes me, I, I've, I've got training as an engineer and also training mm -hmm. as a manager so I can communicate with, uh, with both. That, and that is a skill because both are very different. Yes. Awesome. Well, do you have any other lessons learned you want to share with us, Glenn? No, I think we're pretty good. I, that last story that I told you was pretty much a, a pretty good lesson on that. Well, we're going to put your info in the show notes. So if people have any of the more burning questions, they can get a hold of you. Oh, yes. Yes. If they have any questions, yeah, feel free. My email will be in there. Just contact me by email. And uh, if I can help, I'd be happy to. It's so amazing to have you join us today talking about the pumps and motors. And like I mentioned before, there's so much more and you've alluded to that that could be discussed on this topic. So please, if you have questions, give them a call. Okay. And with that, we're going to transition to the Wanda's Water Tidbit. This is the part of the podcast where we find something that's unusual and sometimes even brilliant about water. And today, Glenn, you're going to cover something for us. And it's the Noria, correct? Yep. Yep. All right. Tell uh, us about that. I, I've had an interest in pumps. I also have an interest in history. So the Noria is actually one of the first pumps. And, and what the Noria was, it came out around the fourth or fifth century in India. Mm -hmm. It was primarily used for irrigation. But what it is, it's a large wheel that had paddles on it and buckets. And they would put that in a flowing stream. And of course, the paddles would rotate the mm -hmm. wheel. 
and the buckets on that wheel would submerge over the water and then go up to the top where they would have a trough and it would dump those buckets into the trough. And it was kind of interesting because when we talk about pumps, we talk about head and volume, head Uh being nothing more than height. And of course, volume is how much it goes. So the Noria actually had specs for uh, head and volume. Some of those Norias were as much as 80 feet in diameter. So they could actually move water 80 feet in the air and start the gravity process, water Uh distribution systems and wastewater. You know, the thing about pumps in our business is really most of the time we use pumps to restart gravity. The ideal wastewater collection system runs on gravity. Yeah. So when we can't run it on gravity anymore, we raise the water with a lift station and restart it. Same thing with a booster station. A booster station may very well fill an elevated tank so that the height of that water can create it. So this was the first one. Depending on how fast the stream went, because of the paddles, that would be how fast the Noria would rotate. And of course, the size of the buckets and the speed of the rotation would be giving it its capacity. So you had that. And then um, going back even farther in Babylon, around seven, 700 BC, they came up with what was called the chain of pots. And oh, yes. uh, That's how they brought water to the surface from a well. Mm -hmm. They have a well and, you know, rather than take one pot and lower it down, they would have a chain of pots and they would either use slave power or hopefully rather horses or something to to move that chain of pots. And Mm -hmm. that would bring the water up from the well and discharge it into a channel and send it out to where it was going to be used. So those are the first early pumps. And when you look at how they work, we're a little bit more elaborate, but the basic thing that a pump does is move water to a higher elevation so it can be used. And mankind's been doing it for a lot of years. That's how we first got to where we were no longer nomads and we were... (laughs) Living in a city, then we needed that water. So, well, and that's a good tie in to the other ancient technology I wanted to talk about because I really think that people were brilliant back then as well. Have you heard of the Nabataeans before? No, I haven't. Okay. So, if you've seen the 1989 Indiana Jones movie where he's looking for the Holy Grail and you've seen that uh, rose sandstone relief or entrance where he's going into the city, that's Nabataean Petra. Okay. And They went from the nomadic 300 BC and occupied there up until the 7th century AD. The only problem, though, is that it's very, very arid there. And they get maybe 15 centimeters a year, but it was the actual best place for Egypt and Babylon and Assyria to kind of meet. So they took this really bad, dry, arid land And when you look at how much rain they got a year, they had barely enough to support the two to 3,000 people that supposedly they started with. And then they found out that there was 30,000 people. So it made all the archaeologists and geologists start really investigating what has happened. And the Nabataeans had literally carved out channels and settling basins. They actually had carved pipes into the stone to convey the water for them. And I'm like, I don't know who had that job, but that would have sucked. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. But they were one of the first to really put in a whole huge water system. And to me, that's pretty exciting when you look at how many cisterns they had and reservoirs and dams. They even had a public swimming pool because they were able to collect so much water. Huh. That's interesting. And they probably use vitrified clay for piping uh, because uh, vitrified clay, which is still being used not mm-hmm. as much as it was, but it's in the ground in wastewater collection systems. I mean, I know they were using that in the Roman aqueducts, so I would think they were doing that back then. Well, and they'd found some terracotta and stuff, but... Yeah, well, terracotta, vitrified clay, that's, that's both the same. But uh, they were getting 12 million gallons a day into wow. the city. So basically, I'm like, wow, if you've got 12 million gallons coming in... Where does it go out? And I didn't actually see any articles talking about what their sewer systems were like. <laughs> but well, sewer it, systems, yeah, we, we know about that. Water flows downhill and it stinks. So it's, yeah, and so yeah. yeah, hopefully it went onto the fields or something like that. Yes, yes. In <laughs> but, those days, just make sure you put your put your city upstream of where your where your wastewater discharge goes. That's right, and don't be the last person on that that yes, line. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, actually, it's it's funny. There's a I, I want to say a Springfield, Illinois has a or not Springfield, Illinois. I think it's Springfield, Massachusetts has a reservoir at a very high elevation. And so they don't need a lot of pumps. And I think it's Springfield. It, it, it's someplace up in New England where okay. they're pretty much running their water distribution system from gravity. Awesome. Because their source, their reservoir is at a much higher elevation than the city. So that would be the ideal that would be the ideal system. Yeah, that would be a luxury for many facilities. Yes. <laughs> Locations. Awesome. Well, Glenn, I have been so delighted to have you. I really appreciate you joining us today and bringing a tidbit as well. That's amazing. You're going to find all of the tidbit notes and links that you can check out yourself uh, in the show notes, of course. And once again, Glenn's contact information. And thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it was my pleasure, Heather. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast, brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulant and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.